Father, we do commit our time to you, desiring that your name be lifted up, that uh, we see a glimpse of you as you revealed yourself in your word, that we may bow down before you and praise you. And we desire that you be glorified in all that we do today, particularly not only this hour, but everything else that we do. We also agree on all the things that have already been prayed, desire that your spirit work amongst us. If there be anything that hinder that, that we would confess that now or set it aside that we may understand what you say in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Well, this morning in the book of Romans, we want to continue looking at sanctification. And I kind of went through things quickly last time at the end there, so we're going to Even though Linda's not here, we're going to review some of the principles. And when we talk about the book of Romans, we want to be reminded of who the book was written to, people that live in real time, real places. In fact, you can visit these places today, and when you do, it should remind you of some of the things that they experienced, like persecution in the Colosseum. And this is written to that group of people. We've been talking about the provision that God has made of his righteousness. That's the bulk of the book. In fact, some commentators even extend it into chapters 9, 10, and 11 in a particular situation that was needed in the first century. I think even today we need to be reminded of some of those things. But at least through chapter 8, God has provided righteousness. But unfortunately, no one can have it. In other words, there are none righteous, and there's no one that can attain it. There's nothing that you can do to acquire it. In fact, we our best efforts are like filthy rags, therefore we stand condemned. And this goes against our thinking, it goes against our desire for sure so we resist it and as a result Paul spends lots of time to convince us that everyone is condemned Jew and Gentile so it doesn't include any exceptions except Jesus Christ but he's kind of a special case we looked at the area where God has provided by what he has done and nothing that we do, we call that justification, or at least Paul does. Paul uses a theological word because he's writing to believers. Even though he deals with the unbeliever, he's describing for us believers so that we are better equipped to minister to those that don't know Christ. That runs through the end of chapter 5, and that brings us to the portion that we're just beginning, and I'm going to Give you a little bit more of an introduction here, 6 through 8, on the area that's called sanctification. Another theological word, we're going to try and define it today. After I give a brief review, actually I'm going to start with something that I didn't give you last time, that I just thought about. But a little background, just to kind of give you the big picture in terms of what this concept is all about. So just some background, we know from, uh, obviously everything is founded on what we have in the, the book of Genesis, and in the book of Genesis we have the origin of the nations, in fact we have the origin of all things, but particularly the, the nations, 
And chapter 10 kind of lays out the nations that existed in the time of Abraham. So there were many, many nations. In fact, all nations come from what we have described in Genesis 10. Every nation on the face of the earth today can trace, if you know the background of history, they can trace their origins from Genesis chapter 10. In fact, even the secular world doesn't have as much detail concerning the origin of nations as Genesis chapter 10. But in chapter 11, the nations have departed from God and desire to do their own thing, make their own name. And after that, in the sequence, what God is doing is calling out an individual by the name of Abraham. In fact, if somebody would look Genesis 12, 2 and 3, he calls out Abraham out of the nations. In other words, he is going to create something from Abraham that he promises in Genesis chapter 12. In fact, some of you can probably quote it without even looking it up. Who's got it? And I will make you a great nation. Yep. Read it. Yep. Read it. And I will bless you. And make Read you it loud. Name. Read it loud. And I will bless you and make yeah. your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So he promises Abraham that through him, he will create his own nation. But what he has done is he has called out Abraham. That's related to this concept of sanctification. In other words, he's separating out somebody for a particular purpose, and through him, he's going to create his own nation. It's going to be something like a counterculture. In other words, people that are going to be identified with him. And through those people, God's intent is to send a message to the other nations, all the other peoples. And this people are to be a peculiar, a different. They're called out. That's what we mean by holiness. Sanctification, I'll show you later, is related to that word. Those that are called out for a particular purpose. And when we get to later on in history, the age in which we live in, God is still calling people out. That's what a believer is, is somebody that's called out of the culture to reflect his glory, and that was the intent of Israel. So Genesis 12.3, we have long-range promises. In fact, what I say in my overview of world history, remember, world history is what? Jewish. Jewish. Very good. World history is Jewish, and from eternity to eternity, we have a record in the Bible of world history, and it's Jewish because it starts with the first Jew, Abraham. And what God is doing with Abraham is demonstrating what he's going to do throughout time. He's going to call people out, and in the Old Testament, a particular nation that is to reflect his character, something of who he is. So this is kind of a theme of, an underlying theme of all of the Bible, this concept of sanctification. I'm kind of laying some groundwork here so we understand the concept. You got it? And through that nation, he intends to bless everyone else. Now the blessing is conditional depending on how they treat God's people. And we are his people today in the church age. And the intention is the same, that we we be a blessing to those 
obviously, that we have contact with. So God calls out Abraham, and we're not going to read Exodus through Joshua, but in those books, we have the creation of that nation, the fulfillment of what God promised. In fact, what I started to say is world history is Jewish. Basically, this lays the foundation, Genesis 12 lays the foundation for all the rest of world history. Because all of the nations through the end of world history will be evaluated based on the way they treat God's people, the Jewish people, particularly the nation. And that has proven itself out through world history and will continue even beyond our day. And I could give you lots of examples, but we're looking for other things here. So he's creating that nation in Exodus. He calls them out of Egypt, out of bondage. There's a lot of imagery there, just as he's called us out of bondage as well. Remember Romans 5, the end of it, and what we're going to look at also in Romans 6. And through Joshua, by the end of Joshua, they're a full-fledged nation. The nation has three elements to it, remember? Land? Well, that's the last one. Okay. Uh, Common people, common constitution, and a common land. And by Joshua, God gives them the land. Now they're a full-fledged nation. And he also makes some interesting predictions and lays out their purpose in Exodus 19, (laughs) 5 and 6. Who wants to read that one? And in that, we have a glimpse of what God is going to do with this special nation, what their calling is, what he intends for them. We're looking at big picture here. Who's got it? Okay. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Okay. Now, the setting or the context, remember this is Sinai, where God is going to give them their constitution He's going to give them their law, everything that they're going to need in order to function as a nation and to be that peculiar people. A special possession of God is what the passage says. And it also lays out what they are to do. Did you read that? Read it again. Uh, You will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Then you shall be a special treasure to me. Read the next verse. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Kingdom of priests, in other words, they are to mediate between the rest of humanity, that nation, Israel, and the rest of humanity, they are to mediate, they are mediators, they are priests, between people and God himself, and within that, he's going to create a kingdom. Now, the ultimate kingdom we still await, it's still future, and it's going to be Jewish. So that's our role as well, correct? Well, we're getting to that. We're get, you're, you're always one step ahead of me, Con. <laughs> always one step ahead of me. I'm just thinking because instead of being mad at people in traffic, I should be blessing them and mediating. Yes. And asking God to... Absolutely. Good application. <laughs> now, we won't read Deuteronomy 28, but for your notes, Deuteronomy 28, 63 through 68. God, this is even before they're a nation. This is before they're in the land. Deuteronomy is written just before they enter the land, to prepare them to enter the land. And he lays out their history, future history. In other words, he predicts what's going to be the outcome of this nation. He makes some promises as well. 
If they obey him, they will be blessed. And he gives a long list in every area of their society, of their life. If they fail, Deuteronomy 28 also lays out what's going to be the consequences, going to be curses, all the way to the end of their history in the Old Testament in 63 through 68, where he predicts that they will be not only be destroyed as a nation, he predicts that they will be scattered amongst all of the nations. Now, chapter 30, he talks about restoration and being brought back together as a nation, and that's even future from our time. So he lays out everything in Deuteronomy before they're even a nation, predicts it. A lot of that has already been fulfilled. The scattering is now going on right now. Now, this is the second scattering after 70 AD. We may be seeing a glimpse of God preparing for these end-time events in that the nation of Israel is back in the land today. Very miraculous event. No other nation, no other culture has ever been scattered for very long and returned back to their land, reestablishing much less 2,000 years. So it's a work of God. God is working. Let's read the next passage. Today, beginning in the first century, what Jesus accomplished, now he is creating a new creation He created a nation to be his people to display something of his character and those that come to Christ during the church age we could describe as a new creation. Who wants to read 2 Corinthians 5.17? You probably have it memorized, right? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Keep reading. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. In Christ, this is Romans 6. This is 6, 7, and 8. Those that have come into Christ from God's perspective, we have something brand new, totally new. We're going to talk about a new nature that we have, and these chapters are going to describe we can live in the old or we can live in the new. It's kind of a choice. It's a decision where we put our trust. So there's a new creation today. And what is that new creation to do? Who wants to look up First uh, Peter 2, 9 through 5? And this is applicable, obviously, First Peter, New Testament. So this is a concept that relates to believers today. Who's got it? Dwayne, you got it? Read it loud. First Peter 2, <laughs> verses 9 and 10. When you were a chosen nation, royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness in his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Okay, did you get that? Not the holy nation, not the people, but what? A people. In other words, this is a different group of people. Talking about believers in this age. So a holy, what that means, we'll talk more about that, is a people that is set apart. People that are called out out of the sinful world system in order to accomplish a particular purpose. 
In fact, he uses some phrases in there similar to what we read in uh, the Exodus 19 passage. And what's the purpose? Read that again, Dwayne. The which which is it? Verse 10, I believe. Who once were not a people, but are now the people of God. The people there. Who have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Does it talk about what's the purpose? Or is that in verse 9? That you may what? Proclaim the excellencies. In other words, the character of God. By the way we live, we should reflect who God is. That's the concept of sanctification. We are called out to be a particular and different people in order that people may see and verbally we can communicate something of who God is, a counterculture, you might say, culture that's different from the culture we live in. That's the concept of sanctification. And the process that God uses to magnify that, it's a growth process, as we talked about last time. We grow to be more and more what? The process of sanctification is growing more and more what? Like Christ. Christ likeness. Christ is God. More and more like what he is so that those around us can see. And so when they see love, when they see joy, when they see goodness from us, they see something of the character of God. Jeremy. It just remind me about, uh, you know, Hebrews 1, right? We're called to be like Jesus. And what is Jesus? Hebrews uh, 1, 3. And he is the radiance of his glory in the exact representation. Exact, yeah, exactly. That's, that's uh, Hebrews 1, verse 3. Hebrews 1, 3. And that is the process of sanctification, a setting apart, we'll look at it again, a setting apart of a particular people for a particular purpose. And here's the purpose. Ellen. I have a question on one of your slides last week. Uh-oh. You had on justification and sanctification, and you listed sin, basis, law, means, righteous, time, and time. We'll do that again. Okay. okay. I have a question about Okay. All right. Good. So just an overview of what we're looking at. We have justification 321 through 521. Now we're looking at chapter 6 through 8. We call that sanctification. We're using Paul's words, theological, so you have to define them. We're not immediately familiar with them. There are three parts to it. Chapter 6 are the principles. Principles of Sanctification. And chapter 7, part of the principles that we need to know deal with how do we accomplish this. So I call that the problems. There are two problems that all of us encounter. In fact, I told you of different approaches. Basically, he's summarizing those there. And uh, the key there is how do you gain the power to do that? It doesn't come automatic. In fact, what comes automatic is what Paul describes as the flesh. Or in uh, chapter 6, we'll see the word uh, that he contrasts with the new man or the new person, the new you, the new nature that only the believer has. So three parts, the principles, chapter 6, the problems, chapter 7, the power that's available in chapter 8. Here's the slide that you are referring to. Kind of a a contrast and comparison of justification that we've completed and what we'll see in sanctification. 
in relationship to sin, God deals with our guilt and he satisfies. Remember I used the analogy of a courtroom throughout. We are guilty before a holy God because there is no righteousness in us. We stand condemned because of that guilt. But justification is God entering in and taking the sentence for us. In other words, the penalty of sin is death. Christ died on the cross that we may be acquitted. That's the word that we use in a courtroom today. Another word with the same idea is that we may be justified. So we are forgiven of that guilt, and we're also given the second aspect of justification. We're granted or we're declared righteous. Sanctification is how is the how do we gain the power to be able to live this new way? And so we have a contrast. It's also based on what Christ has done, or yeah, a little bit of a contrast. The basis is on what Christ has done. That's justification. Now, sanctification is also based on what Christ has done. We'll see that in chapter 6 as well. But it also extends and emphasizes more through the agency of the Holy Spirit. So you can put Christ and the Holy Spirit on that column if you want to. Thirdly, justification, there's nothing that we can do in obeying the law in relationship to the law. It's apart from law. That phrase occurs chapter 3 a couple of times. But we're going to find out that sanctification in chapter 7, he doesn't use that phrase, but it's also apart from the law. It's apart from us obeying. Okay, There's a different dynamic that goes on there. And this is the one that Ellen's asking about the means. Um, I just was wondering why sanctification is faith. Alone. So I was James 2.17, faith without works is dead, and Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation. So I was wondering why good question. it would be faith and works. Yeah, you might say that. So that's a good clarification. Jeremy really was the person. Ah, oh, Jeremy, oh. He's the troublemaker. He asked me about it last week. <laughs> I thought about it. So. Well, the point I'm making with that aspect of it, the means... Justification, no one argues faith alone, except those that have a distorted picture of what the gospel message is about. What I mean by this is it's the work of God alone, and we trust what he did, but it also does involve something of a response as well. Yeah. Except that, as you pointed out, we wouldn't even do the good works if it wasn't the Holy Spirit living in us. And we're going to see that it's God producing those good works. Okay, is that clear? What? If you appropriate in this table, that's change under sanctification to faith and works. We could do that. Right. But just keep in mind, because chapter 7 is going to deal with that, our tendency <coughs> is to do these things in our own strength. And the key is do, doing those in the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. But, but there's a fine line there. There is a fine line. Works with faith. Yes. Yep. That's right. Yeah. Otherwise, there are human efforts that don't sanctify. Yeah. The, the passage we need to put at the top of that list uh, of our our works tasks is without faith, it's impossible to please God. That's right. Yep. That's the anchor point. Right. Very good. So it doesn't matter. If we do a work, if the work has no faith underlying it, it is not pleasing. 
Exactly. Very good. Good clarification. We'll attribute it to Jeremy. Okay, in terms of righteousness, Pat had further. Um, you know, this is about faith and works. I think that you know, in earlier in six, he's making the point that when he tried to do this himself, he failed. Yeah, it, and it, which is what you were saying about right. chapter you know, seven, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, um, but the, I, I would say that works doesn't produce sanctification. Sanctification produces works. Okay. So I, I would I would want to right kind of be clear on that. Right, and like Juliet says, there's a fine line there. We'll try to clarify that fine line when we get to chapter 7. So when it comes to righteousness, justification declares us righteous, does not make us righteous. In fact, sanctification doesn't make us righteous either, but sanctification is the concept of us growing in righteousness. So it's growth. So when a person comes to Christ, we're, from God's perspective, fully righteous from his perspective, but in terms of experience, in terms of where we're at, we still are the same, basically, except that we are declared, and from God's perspective, he treats us as if we're fully as righteous as Jesus Christ. Sanctification is that process of growing to be Christ-like We never reach that because Christ is perfectly righteous. We never reach that, even though there are some, there's a theological position that kind of makes you think that that is possible. That's the next stage. In fact, we could come up with another column called glorification. Then we will be perfectly like Jesus Christ in terms of righteousness, totally separated from sin. That's when we go to be with the Lord. Okay? In terms of time, justification is once for all, the moment we trust. Sanctification is a moment-by-moment, day-by-day, hour-by-hour process. There's ups, there's downs. You can digress. You can go into periods where you don't grow at all. In fact, period of, we might even call it deadness. But it it is a moment-by-moment experience. The process we can call justification a positional experience in that God puts us in this position of righteousness, whereas sanctification is the process that he uses to get us more and more righteous. So let's take a look at these principles, first of all, in chapter 6. And I'm going to give you another survey here, 6 through 14. We, the key is the identification with Christ. So let's look at these a little bit more carefully. I mentioned last time it starts in chapter 5. Remember, that's the transitional link between justification and sanctification. So that, verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, that's the unbeliever, he cannot get away from sin in his own efforts. It reigns. It's like a king ruling in his life. Even so, grace would reign. Now we, we have another option. We can let grace reign, and he's emphasized the grace aspect, through righteousness, and he's made clear, it's not our righteousness, it's through the righteousness of Christ, what Christ has done, to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There it is again. So, Chapter 5, 
emphasizes this grace, this idea of grace, and we're going to see it through 6 through 8. So the principle that I start off with is there's grace available, not in ourselves, outside of ourselves. There's grace available to be able to experience sanctification or to live the Christian life. We need to always remind ourselves. This goes against the approach of legalism. It also goes against that antinomianism that I described last time, our tendencies in both those directions, and the proper view is a grace approach. So in 6.3, or do you not know? Now I spent a little bit of time on it, but we're going to see through the passage a very important aspect is knowing the principles of God, knowing how God works, knowing what we're going to deal with in chapter 6, 7, and 8, understanding. And it extends understanding principles in general, understanding God's Word. This is why you study the Word, so that you begin to lay a foundation in your life. Now you can respond from that. Now, one of the things I'm going to also emphasize here is it starts with the way we think, because if we're thinking in the old patterns, the way we were raised, the default position is we will just continue in those habits, those responses to, you know, the way you respond certain situations in the flesh that are not of God, reacting, basically. You need to, first of all, renew your mind is a word that Paul uses in Ephesians 4. And after he finishes with this concept of provision of righteousness in chapter 12, he talks about renewing the mind again. So, do you not know? So it's important that we know certain things. Because the outward life that we live comes from within. Our tendency is to try to do these outward things without that inward working of God. But it starts with what we think, how we think. We stress that when we get to that point. So do you not know that all of us who have been baptized will spend some time explaining that? It's kind of a difficult, mixed-up idea today. Who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Substitute the word union or identification. Who have been united, united into Christ Jesus, have been united into his death. From God's perspective, and this is reality, this is real, for those that have trusted in Christ, it is as if we were crucified on the cross. He paid the penalty. He was there but God views us because he paid the penalty for us as if we were nailed to the cross. So we should have nail prints in our hands. Identified or united. God has united us into the death of Christ. So what's important is the knowledge of the truth. First part of the verse there. That's one principle. And that begins the next principle uh, in verse 3. Therefore, we have been buried with him. So, the principle is this union with Christ. God views us as if we were in the grave with Jesus Christ as well. Okay? Through the union, we'll substitute that word, 
into his death, so we were dead and buried, so that, what also happened to Christ? So that as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, so what? This is the key to the Christian life. We, too, might walk in newness of life. We have the, what's the word? Potential, the possibility, to be able to live differently. There's a new source of power. There's a new resource, resurrection power. That miraculous power. We, too, might walk in newness of life. Now, the passage goes on in verse 5, for we have become what? United with him, that's key, in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. That's that union. That's that Christ living in us. That's the key. So we can uh, add a principle here, the principle of this uniting. So we'll have to explain that a little, talk a little bit about it. But this is the key that enables us. This is what we not only have to know, but we can act on it as well. In fact, we're going to get to that in a moment. Very key principle. Sometimes, in fact, most Christians don't have that concept. Our immediate response is, okay, now I need to pray more. Now I need to go to church more. Now I need to give more. Now I need to do all these things. There's a place for all that, but you don't want to put the, what is it, the carriage before the horse. Six and seven, knowing this. Notice the stress. And by the way, this idea of knowing, he's going to carry it through all the way through chapter eight. Knowing this, that our old self, literally our old man, our old person, old self is a good translation, that old nature is a way of describing it as well. That old self was crucified with him. That's the verses that we just looked at. From God's perspective, we were on the cross. The old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. That's a process. Putting away, dying to self, so that we would no longer be slaves. That's the condition of the unbeliever. He doesn't have this option. No longer be slaves to sin. That's sin reigning like a king. You're a slave in that kingdom. For he who has died is what? Freed from sin. Now, it doesn't mean that we no longer sin, obviously, right? But from God's perspective, he has set us free. He's paid every, or the penalty for every sin, past as well as future. You twitched? Yeah, I twitched, yes. Um, so is, is this passage, including um, 8 9 going on, um, what the perfectionism uh, yes. theory based very good, yes so yeah. That yeah, and other passages like that, and particularly where the word perfect appears particularly in the King James Version like the Matthew, what is it, 548 yeah, yeah, that's where they get the idea, very good okay, we become more sanctified we are dying more to ourselves that's right, that's right very good, excellent So death to sin is possible because from God's perspective, it has been completed. It's been effective. Now, we still have the capacity within us because of that old self. So six and seven, death is possible. 
11 through 13, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Here's the key. Verse 9. Instead of just 7. Because verse 9 says, um, Knowing that Christ having to be dead dies no more, death no longer. Of course, that's talking more about death. Yeah, that's kind of reiterating and expanding what we had in the other verse. There. I'm giving a survey here. You guys can't. can't He's skipping verses, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> skip verse. Skip verse, and she throws a book at it. You're skipping verse. Oh, sorry about that. Okay. Very key word. That's that word that we looked at way back. Logizomai. Remember that word? Do you remember what that means? It's the mathematical accounting word. Logizomai. Putting to one's credit. In other words, we already have it credited in our bank account. Logizomai here now is now I'm going to draw from that account. It's already there. This is key. So consider yourselves to be dead to sin, because that's how God views us. Now, we need to view ourselves that way, and let that, what's inside of us, come out to the surface. But alive to God, because we have resurrection life within us, in Christ Jesus. Therefore, now we will, from the inside out, from the Holy Spirit out, now we can live differently. Make sense? Therefore, do not let sin reign like a king, rulership, in your mortal bodies. In other words, our physical, material, earthly being, so that you obey its lust and do not go on presenting the members. We'll have to expand that. And by the way, here are the only commands in all of chapter 6, 7, and 8. So this, if you want to do something, this is what we do. Logizomai is a faith word. In other words, believe. In other words, I know these things and now I am trusting. I'm considering myself dead to sin and alive to God. Therefore, do not. Now I can allow something else to operate rather than sin. 13. Do not go on presenting your members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness. There's a lot there that we'll have to expand on in three or four months. <laughs> so faith accesses this life. Another major principle. 11, actually, through 14, if you want to include that. And 15 through 24, i got to move quickly now. We're running out of time. Verse 16, do you not know, notice the theme still, do you not know that when you present, this kind of comes, kind of expanding what he said in 11 through 14, when you present yourselves to someone as slaves, we, we have two options now. We can present ourselves as slaves to sin, but we have that second option. The believer has another option. Slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either sin resulting in death. Now, when you see death there, it's not talking about eternal death here. It's talking about death in the way that we talked about it in chapter 5. Death in relationships. Death in terms of our thinking. Death in terms of our emotions. Death in terms of how it affects other people. Or the other option, or obedience, resulting in righteousness. Resulting in the fruit of the Spirit. So this is why he says someplace else that we can work out our faith with fear and trembling. Because... We have, we're constantly 
battling. Presented with four, with choices. Yes. You know, you're going down the smorgasbord. Yep. I want this, do I want that? You can't have them all. Which yep. one am I choosing as I go down my life? What am right. I choosing moment by moment? Yes, and that Philippians 2.12 that you just alluded to, 13 says, for it is what? For it is he who works in you both to will and to do. Okay. 19, all of that resulting in, now here's the reason I give you that. Sanctification is not a word I made up. I couldn't think of a word like that. It's a word that Paul uses. Resulting in sanctification. Okay. And then again, resulting in sanctification, verse 22. So he uses it two times in that context. Process. In other words, when we are acting, we're experiencing this ongoing process that God gives us. And then the problems in chapter 7, 7 through 7, 1 through 14, the law can't sanctify, so we remind you of that. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law. It's not obedience to the law. We die to the law as well. Through the body of Christ on the cross is implied there, so that you might be joined to another, united to another. He could have used the word baptism. He uses a different word there. To him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. So now it's going to produce something. Our lives are going to produce something. We have a purpose. Fruit. So it's not just for us. It extends. Bear fruit for God for while we were in the flesh. In other words, living in that old way of living. The sinful passions or desires that are sinful, which were aroused by the law. The law arouses them. You see a sign, no U-turn. What do you want to do? You want to make a U-turn. That's how the the law operates in us. You can't have that, is what the law says. Ah, now I want it. I didn't want it before. We'll talk about that. That was what worked in our members of the body to bear fruit for death. Death, again, is in that comprehensive sense that we talked about. Not eternal death. But we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit. Now we can serve. We can bear fruit. We can do things that are beneficial. We can glorify God. We can reflect who He is, and it influences others in newness of the Spirit. It's key. By the way, I think that's the only occurrence of Spirit in chapter 7. So good works cannot sanctify. Obedience to the law cannot sanctify. The flesh cannot sanctify, 7, 15 through 25, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh. I am of the sin nature that's part of me. And when I'm trying to live by my own efforts, I'm sold into bondage to sin for what I am doing. I do not understand because what I'm doing is destructive and I don't want to do destructive things. I do not understand for I am not practicing what I would like to do. I know what's right, and I know what I want to do. I can't do it. But I'm doing the very thing I hate. Notice the I, I, I. I don't remember how many times. 29, 39, I don't remember. Count them in chapter 7. I guess it will vary from translation to translation. Many. Okay? So our own human strength cannot sanctify. It's not willpower. It's not effort. And then chapter 8 is where we gain the power. So 8 is the power. 
so that the requirement of the law, we're not antinomian, we don't throw the law away, but the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We're going to do the things that the, the law requires. Does that make sense? Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. When we're walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, we're actually accomplishing the things that the law requires. So don't get it reversed. Don't try to do the things that the law requires in order to be sanctified. Let the Spirit work from the inside out, and without thinking about it, we'll fulfill the requirement of the law. Okay, verse 4. Verse 11, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He, notice, God, who raised Christ from the dead, will also give life, resurrection life, to your mortal bodies, through his spirit. This is key. This is how it's accomplished. And again, if the spirit of God is in you, and only the believer has the spirit of God within him. So it's only applicable to those who know the Lord. So the Holy Spirit gives power. We're going to see that throughout chapter 8. Another question, Ellen. Yeah, um, newness of life in 6.4, and then newness of spirit in 7.6. Synonymous. Related. Uh, I haven't studied it yet, so I don't know. Is it the same? Is it the same? The newness is the same? Yeah. I'm just wondering why it would be stated one way. I think both aspects are probably present. The Holy Spirit, but there's also the... Our part, our the part in it. Part. Yep. Okay. And uh, I'm going to skip over verse 18. But basically, no matter what we face... And we're going to face problems. We're going to face struggle. So he gives encouragement in chapter 8. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory. That's the glory of glorification that is to be revealed to us later on. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? People can accuse us of all kinds of things, say different evil things to us, but we need to be reminded, you know, it doesn't matter what they say. If Christ is for us, who can be against us, and nothing's going to separate us. There's security here, and we're going to talk about this next week, but that's a good place to stop. The key idea here, let me just summarize what I've got on these and kind of the bottom line here. Sanctification is the process of setting something, and in the case of us, setting us apart for special use. That's what the idea of sanctification is. That's the idea of the word holiness. Something that is set apart. Okay? And we'll pick up there next week. So, a little bit this, of a review. Does this have to be holy use, or do we sanctify other stuff? Yeah, we'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, we'll talk about the Hebrew word kadash, to set something apart. We'll define that more carefully Maybe next year. Just a closing thought. Sanctification is the process by which God creates in us Christ-likeness. Who wants to close for us? Our Greek, our Greek guy. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you, Lord, your grace, love, and mercy you give us. We thank you, Father, for this class here that bringing us together. To hear and learn your word. To hear and learn also the truth. 
Amen. And by the way, keep Cheryl in your prayers. They're doing some testing. There might be some serious things going on there, right? 